Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Shelley Chopra, award-winning journalist and founder of the digital platform, She the People. Shelley was a Draper Hills Fellow at Stanford in 2019, and her organization continues to host students from the Stanford Policy Studio. Today, we will be talking about the impact of her time at Stanford, as well as her many, many projects. Shelley, welcome to the SASPOD. It's such a pleasure being with you, Lalita. Thanks so much for having me here and talking about the work I'm trying to do and make little impact day by day. Please start by introducing yourself to our listeners. Thanks so much. So, you know, I've spent nearly 22 years um, building careers in content, media and broadcast. And I'm at the cusp of another change when I'm going to delve into building uh, what promises to be India's biggest platform for women's health particularly reproductive and sexual health. Um, I spent about 13 to 14 years uh, as a broadcast uh, television journalist reporting on big business stories, interviewing people from Warren Buffett to Christine Lagarde uh, for the Indian uh, mainstream media, mm-hmm. until one day I realized that the power of digital was almost addictive. And there was uh, something truly empowering and enabling about using technology to reach more people. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got up and said, let's start a platform that's focused on telling stories of women. This is how She the People was born. And now seven years hence, She the People's uh, audiences, which is close to 20 million eyeballs a month, have sort of triggered another another possibility as to how women can potentially transact and use digital for improved preventive health services. And that's going to be my next project. Say more, um, and we will get to the next project, but say more about She the People. When you say it's a digital platform, what does it, walk us through the steps. So She the People was started out as a content media platform where women came to talk about their journeys and hear other women's stories. Uh, pretty much started like a website back in 2015 but very soon went from becoming a content platform to one where communities met and interacted and women shared their own experiences, challenges, insecurities. Um, And, you know, that led to yet another thing, which was that women wanted to meet and interact. So uh, very soon, She the People became an integrated space for women to interact about, you know, about practically every challenge they faced and find a sisterhood of sorts to have those queries answered, other than the fact that they could read some really rich, engaging and meaningful content. Uh, So put it um, succinctly, the platform really is one where women cannot come and buy diapers or lipsticks or talk about the next launch pad or outfit. They come there to talk about what 
bothers them and how they can change things about their journeys. Is it aimed at women in South Asia or do you feel it's a global platform? From the current readership of uh, She the People, it's uh, very global. Uh, particularly during COVID, we were widely read by audiences in America and in the UK. My belief is that most women around the world have very shared problems. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when they read stories about women in India, it resonates with them in Australia, just as it does in, let's say, London. Mm -hmm. So um, we're, we're very global in that sense. And is the, um, the language um, English in Roman script? Yeah, we're a platform that offers itself in English and Roman script. It is also Hindi and it is Bengali, and it's moving to two, three other languages through this year, uh, offering women um, two, three other Indian languages in this uh, coming year oh. to offer women more conversations of comfort, shall I say, in their own language. That's, that's amazing. Um, why she the people? Tell us the story of the name. So, you know, this name is so, so dear to me because um, it has two little stories. One, which is the story I talk about much more, is that the Indian constitution starts with the three words, we the people. And I just one day said to myself that this we the people can have zero success without the power of she the people. Mm -hmm. Half your country not contributing to its value systems to its growth story to its economic value output big issue and the backstory of the term is that i i wrote it about four years before i actually set course to set up the platform um like many other people in the world i have a little notebook right next to my bedside and when i wake up in the middle of the night tossing and turning about something that's playing on my head i just write it down there so, so that's how I, I I sort of literally wrote down the words she the people because it just spoke to me so much and forgot about it. Uh -huh. uh, but somehow, you know, this this little pad met me in the time that I think it was meant to be. You were a Draper Hills Fellow at Stanford in 2019. Um, I had not heard of the fellowship until I met you. So can you tell us more about the fellowship itself and then also how it was for you to be at Stanford at that time? I think my time spent at Stanford was really special for many reasons, but chief of which was this program, the Draper Hill Summer Fellowship Program, because it kind of puts the entire focus on democratic structures. They break down and they're building up. And as a woman, I wasn't sure initially if I should apply for this, uh, largely because I thought, what could I bring to the table of democracy mm -hmm. until it hit me that fighting everyday battles for women and putting their voice on the decision-making table mm -hmm. is a mega contribution to democracy. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I got this fellowship, uh, you know, it was perhaps, um, it was the moment when I had completely finally convinced myself that yes, indeed, that I would be able to change so much about what I'm doing back here in India, uh, you know, working on the front lines of demo democratic change. Um, and creating ways by which women can speak up and the women who choose to stay silent, others can speak up on their behalf and shift policy. Mm -hmm. So it was a three-week training program for um, democratic leaders from around the world. 
uh, led by, uh, you know, a bunch of very, very interesting uh, people, whether it was Francis Fukuyama, who, um, you know, I follow still, and the many furniture pieces he creates in his leisure time, or Larry <laughs> Diamond, who, uh, who reminds us how important it is to um, write and rewrite, um, you know, many elements of democracy, mm. keeping its core at uh, focus, or Mike McFall, mm -hmm. whose uh, practical experiences with the, with the world and countries uh, put a dash of reality to, I guess, how we think of democratic structures by the book versus how they actually play out. So I think for me, the, the program was a rich program. And then of course we had Eric who um, was an India specialist an Asia specialist and had um, you know great inputs for people like myself. So I think um, the peer to peer learning coming in from emerging markets largely, there wasn't an American fellow for this one. So we had lots of shared issues, whether we were from Egypt to China. Mm -hmm. um, and discussed a great deal of that. And I think for me, one of the things that made this very enriching is that in the entire lot of people, although many of them would at times work with cross, uh, cross functions of gender, I was really the one person who was bringing one heavy gender lens into how we were thinking about public participation in health programs or um, when women uh, you know, look at um, deforestation of the Amazon, for example. So I think there were lots of elements that a person who's talking to women on a daily basis brings to programs like this. Yeah, so cool. it was enriching for me. And I think the program gained from my experiences too. I'm sure, I'm sure. And so, all right, so you created She the People, you came to Stanford, it, it, it helped you kind of hone some of your thinking around um, your contribution to democratic development and then what happened next then i gave a ted talk or a <laughs> ted style talk <laughs> of course which you was did the one at stanford i mean i had done a couple of these back in india uh on different things but the one at stanford really was fascinating because i kind of articulated the math when it comes to women in india and i started my ted talk by saying that since people love statistics, let's give them a heavy dose of that before they start thinking about women as niche. Mm -hmm. And I said, we are 50% of the population in India at 750 million. That's 9% of the world's population, twice the size of America, five times the size of Brazil and seven times the size of Japan. Are we even talking about women being niche? Right. Where we are a force of nature that we have stopped recognizing just because we didn't wear black suits. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that TED talk sort of released something. Uh, and I, I, I came back with this massive energy to remind people yet again, especially CEOs and men who sit at policy tables that you cannot ignore Indian women. I mean, that was my agenda, but I guess you can't ignore women anywhere. They don't need to be empowered. They have the power. We just need to enable them to find it because, you know, somehow we live in this bubble where somebody else believes they need to do this for us. You know, right. they want to just offer this empowerment as if it's like a crown or a sash that needs to be passed on to us. We are smart women. We know what we want. A lot of us could just need an enable environment, enabling environment to speak up. We need to just create that. And I think that was another piece of my learning there that let's not give somebody this high mantle to offer us a solution. 
let's rise up to it and get onto an equal table and ask our rightful place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what were some of the main issues? Because I, you, you said in the beginning and when we talked before that you're going to um, focus more on health and reproductive rights, which, I mean, we're recording um, on May 9th, so the week after the, uh, the Supreme Court, quote unquote, leak. Um, and so in the United States, and so um, we are all thinking about women's health and reproductive rights. So it's very timely for us to be talking about this, uh, even though your work's in the context of India. Um, but how did you get there from She the People? Was it because you found looking at the platform, that's what many women were talking about? Or what was that trajectory like? So, you know, um, when when you start spending a lot of time with women, you start discussing things that they really need. And she, the people, really gave me that very, very important opportunity. So the platform currently has featured 400,000 women, uh, mostly around um, in India, but also many Indians around the world. Mm -hmm. And the conversations with these women have really been at some point about what is the one thing they want that gives them agency. And a lot of them would tell me, Shelly, I want to have more decision making power over my own body. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence, marital rape are very central issues of what happens in India that goes completely unreported. Mm -hmm. In fact, marital rape is not a law in this country, which right. is a big raging debate currently. Yeah. So we have a situation where half the population feels that their bodies were made to offer mm. as somebody else's and not their own whether we're talking about sexual rights we're talking about reproductive rights we're talking about childbearing and choices of motherhood we're talking about sexual pleasure mm. or just having the choice to not marry because marriage is actually in india just the license to you know consummate and have a baby right, right? So I think we had major issues here. Um, but, you know, these issues actually start even one step later. What women don't know is what their bodies are about, what mm. their rights over their own bodies are. Mm -hmm. is, is, for example, the fact that abortion is legal in India is something that most women don't know, mm. right? The fact that they have the right to speak to a gynecologist and the right to have the right information about their, uh, you know, potential termination of pregnancy is, is a real right here. So when, when, when this entire issue broke out in the United States, I mean, I can't tell you for a moment, I said there are times when I feel so empowered being a person here, even with all the difficulties that we face, because not having a baby due to any reason or a choice, that should rest with the woman. Right. right? I mean, the fact that state believes it can get involved in this yeah. is massively problematic, right? So, I mean, that's not like even at any point glorify our health system in India. We have mega issues. Sure. And that's the reason we are, I am now moving from the center of what She the People has been trying to do to actually creating products and services that offer consultation to women across the country in many languages to solve for contraception issues, answers to some of the most basic questions they have on sexual health and gynecology. Yeah, so uh, tell us more about that. Um, I, I, the way I understand it is you're moving, and She the People is there, but you're now zooming in 
Um, that's perhaps a bad word to use because Zoom has taken on such a big meaning in the pun. You're honing in um, on a different platform being mobile technology um, and, and broaden out the scope of languages as well um, and to really focus on health. So tell us all about what I believe is called Dr. Didi. So it's Dr. Didi, which is a subset of a larger platform called Gayatri. Okay. Gayatri is uh, the name of a goddess in India. Uh, but the way I have written it is G-Y-T-R-E-E. -E. Okay. So it has many meanings, including the fact that there is a tree that emerges from every woman's womb. And that tree should not be one that chooses to have a baby or not, but all encompassing and life giving for a woman. Right. So when I look at what we're building with Dr. Didi, the chatbot on WhatsApp um, and Gayatri, the platform, it's really to solve for a central issue. Where do I go when I have questions about very basic issues about myself? Uh -huh. I could go to the internet and search for information that won't be verified, but could I actually just speak to a medical practitioner? So the platform we're building is doctor backed, scientifically verified and offers at a very reasonable amount uh, services and products that can help women ease off many, many primary and preventive healthcare issues. India has one in four women having breast cancer, which also could be avoided if they had screened well enough, mm -hmm. uh, especially with those with family histories. We have problems of cervical cancer. Most people don't know they have to take a vaccine well in time in their teen years. Mm -hmm. um, we have issues around um, just taking the wrong contraception and then basically ruining your womb for life mm -hmm. only because the access to the doctors have been difficult mm -hmm. imagine i guess this is true for the united states as well if you're a young woman you don't want to have these discussions with your mother or your aunt because you're worried that she's going to judge you or scold you right. and then you certainly don't want to do the same with your mom's best friend or cousin who's also a doctor right. so who do you go to right you will go to instagram and dm this to somebody that's one way to do it and not knowing whether that's the real answer. So instead we're creating what is a social media driven platform that offers you the same experience as you like on social media, but focuses on health and gets you real doctors to answer your questions. And I think that is a game changer today because women are desperate for the information. You said something which is core of what I'm trying to do. India has, I don't know how many thousand languages, um, but I think the primary one of them are about 32. And from those, we are trying to at least launch our platform in three to four languages in the first year so that women can access private issues in private uh, in their own language. So I think that's very significant as well for us. Walk us through the steps. So uh, say um, I'm a woman um, in Bihar. Uh, and I have questions around, you know, I've had two children and I really don't want to have any more. I don't know how to access information around that, but I do have a cell phone and I've heard about this bot that's doing the rounds. Um, so what happens next? What do I do? Great. So Lalita, the bot you're talking about is called Dr. Didi. For the benefit of all your users, Dr. Didi is simply doctor plus Didi. Didi means elder sister in India. And um, the Dr. Didi is a bot. It's a chat bot on WhatsApp that simply gives information to people who interact with it. And the interaction is automated. So it, it's also first information of what women are looking for before they go on to Gayatri to transact for a doctor's consultation. Right. So through the bot, 
for which I'm sure Lalita, you put the number down there for somebody to see or the link to click on and experiment. Uh, people can essentially go to the bot and say hi, namaste, or you know, in whichever language. Like currently, it's available uh, available in Bengali, uh, and then it offers you questions like, "What would you like to know?" You have the option of saying, "I have irregular periods. I want to know about pain in the vagina. I want to talk about itching. I want to talk about you know periods." So it'll give you all these questions and then you just keep selecting what you want and it keeps unraveling itself with information that you need. Currently, the information is in text and video. In the coming days, it will also become text, audio and video. For us, this is a this is a kind of product that we will be driving in a widespread way in rural India, uh, especially uh, with the aim of taking it in many other languages so that women just don't have to fear borrowing their dad's phone, asking their mom for something. In most cases, she's not going to give them the answer. Instead, just talk to this chatbot and get whatever basic information they need before they potentially go and speak to a doctor. I mean, every woman should know what is up with her body. Right. And, uh, you know, that's that's an important part of it. And so because if you do a search on the Internet, then there's a record of that. But when you chat to a bot, there's no and there isn't even a person. So it's completely anonymous. And then you just you could delete it and then it's gone. Right. There's no evidence that that is that is that how it works like that? It's how it discreet. could work? It's discreet. It's anonymous because it's a machine and it offers you the information that is backed by doctors and verified yeah. by doctors yeah. at the bottom of each piece of information it says which doctor verified that information so oh, wow. that makes it a really legitimate way of getting information in places it offers video but it also offers pictures for example most women don't know what's the difference between a vagina and vulva and mm. it explains very neatly how that works so yes non-judgmental because there's no human being right. discreet and you can delete your chat and that would be the end of it it's amazing and then um from dr diddy people can move on to to guide tree to actually find a person that they want to speak to or have um health from yes okay great completely understood um i have some questions about technology but uh, we'll get to those i want to ask you uh first about the um the policy studio program um because i believe you hosted some stanford students earlier this year what was that like and what did you do with these students or what did they do while they were with you in india so we were really fortunate to have a partnership with the policy studio students uh, three women who came to india um just a month or so ago uh, with the aim to understand what is the on ground situation for women when it comes to reproductive and sexual health. Uh, and they also layered it with this conversation how technology could solve for it. And they've, uh, you know, they've spent many weeks discussing this with us, with people in the government in India, which we helped enable um, the conversations with. We also took them to a couple of uh, very interesting cities and towns in India, including villages where they could get a cross section of how, for example, in the state of Maharashtra, which is a state they visited, uh, a city, uh, a, a sort of city side slum versus a, a, a village in interior Maharashtra. How do women think about their bodies? What do they think about them? How openly do they talk about them? And, uh, you know, what does it take to get them to talk openly about what they're feeling, uh, you know, about their bodies? So I think um, 
it was a really enriching experience for them as well as our teams which went with them so um for me at she the people one of the things is very central uh, lalita which is how do i give back mm-hmm. right i have been very fortunate to have the heads up of setting up a platform when nobody else wanted to do it so i come with the with a great sense of hindsight that you know i discovered the market for women in india i i sort of created the women's internet in india mm-hmm. so what could i do now to give back mm-hmm. and that's why whether it's partnering with the policy studio or partnering with other organizations that are working with uh, women in sport to alleviate them from poverty or personally donating to uh, non-profits that are working for women education all of these are very important i think <clears throat> for somebody who really believes in how women can enable themselves to do more so um so the policy studio program itself was um, a great learning experience not just for the girls who got here but even for us at our teams um to to see how we can partner stanford and do more for the students uh, you know um over here it's i mean it's i i just you know we we scheduled this this call a while ago and and so much has happened in the united states around reproductive rights i mean we all knew that this thing was going to come in summer and i've had no um kind of you know optimism around what will what's going to happen to Roe v Wade but I don't think because of this leak you know here we are early May and and we're already in the midst of of really dealing emotionally and and practically with the with the potential fallout of this um, and so for us to be having this discussion is to me so powerful so inspiring as well to hear you talk but also it really turns on its head how people think about the global north and the global south or the quote unquote developed and the developing world and and so um i hope people really who listen to us talking really reflect on this so um going back to um technology we had um obama at a president former president obama uh, speak at stanford um last month uh, and one of the things he spoke about was the danger of mis and disinformation and i'm wondering to what extent you're worried about that in the context of your work so i think disinformation is um a theme that is going to be alive for the foreseeable future sure for good reason because it reminds us about the pitfalls of what technology especially led by large corporations can mm-hmm. do Mm. Uh, I think there's no taking away from that. There's no taking away from the extent of fake news that's being created as we empower public in general to be able to produce content and right. sort of turn everyone into a journalist of sorts, right? right. Um, can't deny that consumers should also partly be blamed for consuming that kind of stuff. But that said, uh, you know, whether one should shoot the messenger or, or, or those who are consuming the message or starting it, this, these are very long debates and they can sort of take up hours with still no answers to it. But I think what I find very, very um, relevant to the work I do, which is around women, is that you know disinformation comes in many different ways. For example, in India, I get trolled regularly I'm for sure. supporting women and not pointing out, apparently, that men think women are gold diggers. And apparently I'm not doing enough. So every day there is somebody who believes that I should set up he the people and highlight the plight of many men who are apparently getting cheated by wives or girlfriends and so on and so forth. So now the thing about disinformation is that 
is there some are there some such incidents of course um does does feminism uh, and she the people accommodate for women and their errors of course do we do we recognize that women make uh, mistakes and they should be penalized uh, if you know if the law needs that of course the point i'm trying to make is that this is how disinformation spreads two cases against 200000 that are you know of violence against women yeah. will then sort of catapult into some sort of a raging viral post yeah. about how women don't deserve a space of their own so i think you know there's that there's also a great deal of dis disinformation when it comes to rape in india uh, and uh, by that what do i mean is that not only are we having many rape cases every single day dowry deaths every single day we're not reporting them, them enough often we report wrong information um, for every 1000 stories that india does in the media uh, nearly 80% are on bollywood the government and cricket 20% is on everything else including women so mm -hmm. you can imagine the scope of how how little attention we're paying to some important stuff so i think there's that there's another facet of disinformation and i don't know what to term it maybe it's like limited information right i think that is a big problem too we're not speaking up enough on every situation or every story great example is in india we have a we have something that has happened pretty regularly every year, which is the death of many farmers, mm -hmm. death by suicide mm -hmm. of many farmers who are indebted mm -hmm. and basically find, you know, killing themselves a solution. We report on the number of deaths and what the government has done in order to give them, you know, some sort of compensation to their families, etc. We never go back to find out what their wives, sisters, mothers are going through, mm -hmm. how the wife has sold her children for, into prostitution because she had no money. Because what happened to that death? The debt, the debt was left behind for the wives to look after. So what would she do, right? Oh my the God, guys that's, I, I like, I've literally never heard that angle. Never, right? Just and, never. and now I'm shocked that I hadn't thought about it. Now I'm like, oh, of course, like, of course. Like what happens to that debt's not gone. I think I kind of assumed that. But of course, that's so not how debt, that that's not how capitalism works. But put wow. that lens to anything. I mean, put that lens to anything, right? We are so busy telling the story from one side. We just don't say it on the other side at all, right? I mean, you know, I'm talking about something really serious. Let me also throw in something as frivolous as this. Mm -hmm. When you go to an office, all men are wearing black suits and enjoying the air conditioner. Women are wrapping themselves in blankets on their chairs in, in like in the thick of summer in their offices because they're freezing. Yeah. I mean, there is research now to show that air conditioning levels in an organization are suited to men. I mean, we are so blind to the needs of women yeah. that we don't yeah. tell the other side of the story yeah. because we don't think the other side of the story. So I think there is that. And this is one of the core reasons when she, the people who started was like for everything, put the lens on where these women are. You know, there's data out every day, but where are the women in that data? What are those women doing? What was their contribution to that data or were they left out from that data? So there are all of those things to be thought about. But there's one thing that I would say that is very, it's, it's something that again, we need to think harder about when we look at technology and blame it so much, is that I think women are big champions of technology what it's done for them both social media and access to mobile phones mm -hmm. is that it may have thrown them in a little bit of this disinformation debate 
but what they care most about is access to opportunity, access to being able to reach out to a sisterhood, you know, access for you and me to have a conversation and tell you what's going on in my world and learn from yours, mm -hmm. right? Access to learning how to knit something and sell it for 500 rupees at the next fair. Mm -hmm. These are things that are invaluable. Mm -hmm. I know women who have gotten out of abusive marriages because they learned something like a resin jewelry on the internet and started making it and use social media to sell. Mm -hmm. And when they had their own money, they walked out of those marriages. So for me, this is it's goosebumping stuff every time I say this, that a woman can today thank digital and social media many times over uh, than worry about its couple of big issues. So um, I don't want to um, kind of spoil <laughs> spoil the happy mood, and this would be this would be a lovely place to end. Um, but I do feel compelled to ask you a little bit more about the misogyny of social media, especially as uh, Twitter has just been bought up by Elon Musk, and I mean we don't know what's going to happen with that. But there's this push towards quote unquote free speech, and usually that just means more trolling. I mean, it's not actually free speech because, you know, it's very controlled, right? Uh, but misogynist trolling, and there's so much of that. So I hear you on the incredible positive um, possibilities of technology for women, but there is that other side. And, and how do you, I mean, obviously you deal with it on a daily basis, and I'm sure you get horrible, horrible messages. Yes, I'm sure. And I'm I can only imagine. Um, how can we control that or can we? What do we do in our heads if we can't actually control the medium? So I think if I just hear what you said, control the medium, that is anti to why the fourth estate was born, not to be controlled, right? At some right. level. Right. The question is that social media itself, uh, should we call it a fourth estate? I think in today's world, we don't have an option, right? Mm -hmm. Is the internet an equal space? Oh, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. So I think let's not forget what are the very basic structures of how technology, social media, media are formed. They're formed by the very people who sort of exist in society. And right. therefore they bring their biases in every form, whether tech algorithm or just verbal um, and expression led biases. Um, women today are at the receiving end to the extent that many times they want to just have mental peace by getting off social media. My DMs, direct messages are full of people just abusing, men abusing me because I stand for women. Often women questioning a certain kind of brand of feminism. Um, many times, you know, people saying that women are creating fake cases of Me Too. Now, all of these are very legit debates, but doesn't mean that, you know, you need to go out there and target people and then threaten them with cases and rape and, and you know, much more. I think that we are in for um, a very complicated future, particularly since Twitter happened in the post-Obama speech scenario. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, sort of reinforce that speech and its relevance uh, yeah. at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that there is this sort of demand for absolute speech and absolute expression um, can be problematic, is problematic, but it's as problematic as the idea that how do we regulate this? So I think um, that is going to be a work in motion 
as we look at more behavioral self-regulation opportunities and create these platforms in a way that they give us that 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 toolkit but um looking at how excited musk is to make the big changes at twitter i think we are in for some um serious roller coaster ride to see whether we as early adopters of twitter and i started back in 2007 I remember how at the World Economic Forum, I used to be called out as one of the few big tweeters, tweeters <laughs> because we were so few. I mean, we knew each other by face, right? We would wow. spot each other in the corridors of the Davos um, coffee shops and say, hey, I know you from Twitter. You know, it's a bit like that. So I just think that it's, it's up for some serious rethink. Uh, but that said, I mean, let's not forget that while some of these places are open, there is a very strong movement of the dark web, which has its own sort of social media spaces, which are probably up to a lot more than is being currently investigated. So many of us are opting for um, all kinds of other social platforms, which are quieter, less visible, more intimate. I don't know where we're going with all of this, you know, I don't know. Right, right, yeah. Well, so it's, it's exciting times. Um, I hope that I can have you back on SASPOD uh, in a few years uh, and find out about all the things you've been doing. Hopefully you will have made it back to Stanford by then and we can meet in person rather than over Zoom. Thank you so much for coming on SASPOD today and telling us all about your work. Thanks so much, Lalita. It's been fantastic knowing about what you are doing, taking so many fa- uh, amazing journeys of people Uh, to everyone else at Stanford and yeah it's been enriching to spend uh, if not much but many weeks at Stanford learning from the best. Thank you so much. As always I want to thank Soham Shiva for the intro and outro music and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.